Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, greetings, everyone. It's always good to reunite after a period of a couple weeks. We've been starting our semester at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, and so that has definitely been keeping those of us who are involved with that quite busy, but it's been really great. A lot of great new students, a lot of blessings going on there. Just really thankful for all that God's doing. And it's been keeping me busy, but I've been yearning to get back to doing a little podcasting and recording a few more episodes. So today I wanted to talk about an issue that comes up whenever I'm going through Old Testament studies. That's the Queen of Heaven issue. Now, I don't know, some of you might not have heard of this issue before, but Jeremiah in particular, the the weeping prophet, as he is often known, actually discusses an individual who is known as the Queen of Heaven. Now, obviously, some cults go crazy on this. I mean, this is the stuff that cults are made out of, quite literally. And even the Catholic Church talks about the Queen of Heaven and they talk about it in a quite different sense. If you look up Queen of Heaven, in fact, the main references you'll get are two Catholic writings as a reference of Mary. And it is interesting that Catholicism takes the title Queen of Heaven and applies it to Mary in part of their veneration of her. But what we see going on in Jeremiah seems to be quite a bit different. And so it's actually quite ironic because the reference to Queen of Heaven seems to be very idolatrous in the book of Jeremiah, and that's as Protestants. What we would argue the Catholics do with Mary is they make make her an idol, essentially uh, a fellow deity with with Christ in many uh, senses, uh, worthy of worship and veneration and things like that. So it's it's important to talk about. It's something that causes lots of questions. And so I want to give kind of a survey of the different views that have been given on this issue and kind of put forward the different evidences. So the two main areas where Queen of Heaven is mentioned is in Jeremiah 7, 18 and 44, 17 through 19, as well as verse 25 of chapter 24. So I'm going to read that just so it's in our minds. In Jeremiah 7, verse 18, you have the context of the word of the Lord, and this is in verse 1, the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah, and he's to stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that would be the temple, and proclaim this word. So this is a a word going to Judah, those who are in Judah, and in verse 18 specifically, uh, this this is part of the prophecy, this is part of the proclamation, He says, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the woman need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So notice that this is within a list of their wrongdoings. Basically, the children, the fathers, and the woman, the women, excuse me, are all doing things that would be proffered to foreign gods. The queen of heaven is specifically listed as well as pouring out drink offerings to other gods. So that's part of the Jeremiah context in in chapter 7, identifying the queen of heaven as part of this worship symposium of other gods, which they see. Now, if we hop over to Jeremiah 44, we get another context and quite a bit more information. 
Now, the context of Jeremiah 44 is this is Jeremiah's prophecy to all the Judeans who were living in the land of Egypt, according to verse 1. So these are those individuals who have fled Jerusalem given the Babylonian oppression, and they've gone to Egypt to escape all that persecution. And here's God's word coming through Jeremiah in order to really show them that it's not the location that will save them. It's their abandonment of God, which assures their destruction, essentially. And so we see picking up uh, in verse 16, this is the response. In fact, in verse in verse 13, you see God through Jeremiah saying, I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with sword, famine, and pestilence. Now, this is the people's response. All those people who were living in the land of Egypt in verse 16, they say this, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Not exactly a great response to those who have been given the word of the Lord. And so they continue in verse 17, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven, pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven, and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. So you see the context there where basically they're blaming the fact, which is really ironic if you think about it, they're blaming the fact that they neglected to bring offerings to the Queen of Heaven and that's why they're in such trouble. So it's it's completely reversed. God is telling them they need to repent. And they're saying, no, we need to return to worshiping the queen of heaven just like we did previously because then we were blessed and now we're not. And in verse 19, it goes on even and says, the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? In other words, we did this as a service to the Queen of Heaven with the full blessing of our husbands. This is this is a unified effort of the family to worship whoever this is, the Queen of Heaven. So a lot of different options here. Uh, obviously, this has nothing to do with Catholicism, although if you run a Google search or something, you're going to, or if you're if you're a anti-Googler, a duck-duck-go search, uh, I wonder if we can create that into a verb. I duck-duck-goed it, you know, something like that perhaps. Well, if you are looking for the different options, I think there's, there's probably four main options that you'll, you'll identify as a possibility here as to what's being referred to. I mean, this is the only place in the prophets, in the writings where the, where you have the phrase queen of heaven. So it's, it's really unique. Um, what are, what are the options? So I think one of the main options is that the queen of heaven is a reference to the Mesopotamian deity, the goddess Ishtar. So Ishtar is the principal deity in this Mesopotamian sphere of religion. And so she was, she was religiously worshiped by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. In fact, we have very prominent archaeological finds that uh, have been uh, discovered in the cities of Nineveh, for example, Uruk, Arbella, 
this th- these finds have typically depicted this this goddess along with some of the ancient literature like the epic of gilgamesh and things like that as as ishtar being the goddess of love and sexuality but that's not it because she's also the goddess of warfare which is uh important in many contexts but for example i did mention the epic of gilgamesh and the epic of gilgamesh records the hero whose name is gilgamesh uh, demeaning Ishtar because of her mistreatment of her lovers. In other words, uh, Gilgamesh basically goes after her saying, you know, you mistreat all those who, who have loved you and everything. So she's kind of viewed in that story as somebody who just mis, misuses and mistreats, uh, her lovers. Uh, and so there, there is a little bit of demeaning there in the story. Uh, in fact, the connection that's, that's drawn between many who hold this view would be that the description queen of heaven and earth is what's used in some of the literature, uh, extra biblical literature in the ancient Near East to define Ishtar. So the fact that we have here in Jeremiah, the reference to queen of heaven and Ishtar is referred to as the queen of heaven and earth, that would make a good case for connecting Ishtar and the queen of heaven. So in other words, perhaps Israel is worshiping Ishtar uh, the god of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and that's what's being targeted in Jeremiah. There's also other uh, evidence that could be used to link Jeremiah's view of the Queen of Heaven with the goddess Ishtar. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah 44:17, we see that Israel is giving offerings and drink offerings, and in 7:18 as well as 44:19, we see that there's some sort of cakes being made on her behalf on, on behalf of the queen of heaven. Now the word for cakes, uh, in Hebrew is related to the Akkadian, which Akkadian would be the principal language of the Babylonians, at least in their record and things like that. And their term for cakes is, is similar to the Hebrew term. They, they're related. They're cognates is the word. And so many people have pointed to that evidence saying, well, hey, perhaps the fact that these cakes that are made for Ishtar are related to the same cakes that are being made in Jerusalem is strong evidence that this, that's what's going on. So that could, I mean, that's obviously a strong consideration, right? Because this is the same kind of offerings that we see in ancient Near Eastern literature being offered to Ishtar. And so that's, that's very strong assumption. And because of that Akkadian word use with the Hebrew, it's often assumed that these cakes that are being alluded to in Jeremiah include the image of Ishtar, which would be some sort of sexualized image, which we find in the other ancient Near Eastern literature. So that's definitely a possibility. So let's keep going with some of the other possibilities before we circle back around and make some final observations. So we looked at how Ishtar could correlate with the Queen of Heaven as pictured in Jeremiah. There's also another option Astarte. And Astarte is a Canaanite goddess who was the consort of Baal, the well-known Canaanite storm and fertility god. Now, Astarte is referred to in the Bible as Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth. So when you see in the Bible the idea of Ashtoreth, you're, you're seeing what is referred to in uh, Ugaritic or other ancient Near Eastern documents as Astarte. Now, it's actually interesting here, and this is something that I plan to do more study on, maybe a future podcast episode, but uh, 
part of the difference in the names in scripture, Ashtoreth versus Astarte. Uh, why, why, why is it different? Why doesn't the Bible just use the same name? Well, it's possible that, and this, it seems to be done in biblical literature at times. And so there are at least a couple examples I know of where this, this shows up where for whatever reason, whether it be the prophets or the scribes or, or whoever, there seems to be a intentional changing of the name to coincide with a shameful word. So, for example, Ashtoreth sounds a lot like Bosheth, which is the word for shame in Hebrew. And so it seems like the vow, because Semitic languages are typically, are typically consonantal in how they are, are written, it would be really easy, especially for Hebrew, to just repoint vowels and have Astarte become Ashtoreth, which is equivalent with Bosheth in the sense of shame. So it's possible. Uh, and, and again, this is something I want to research a little more and, and put together some more material, but it's, it's possible that this is a intentional uh, distortion of the name, as it were, to show that this goddess is, is shameful, as it were, compared to God, Yahweh of Israel. So Astarte is commonly referred to as the mistress of heaven, and so obviously that's very similar to the queen of heaven. And so some scholars note that because she's the only deity in the Canaanite sphere that's associated with the heavens, she should be recognized as the queen of heaven in Jeremiah. Now that's important. And obviously uh, I think part of the push to see Astarte as the queen of heaven is this idea that Canaanite influence is more significant on Israel than Assyrian influence. So for many people who would hold this view, for example, they would say, well, it's much more likely that the Canaanite religions, which Israel was interacting with day in, day out, would have much more influence on Israel religion. And there may be something to be said about that. However, I need to point out that Assyrian influence was very prominent in Judah. So for example, in 2 Kings 16, you have Ahaz importing the Assyrian model for the altar and presumably their, their ideas of worship that go along with it. He sends back, uh, once he goes to Damascus, sees the Assyrian altar, he sends it back to Jerusalem to be constructed in place of the altar that God gave at the temple. So there are examples, even in scripture, of Assyrian influence on Israel, and we just need to keep those in mind obviously. So one way or another, I don't think we can say Canaanite influence uh, trumps Assyrian when we have examples of both, but it's something to keep in mind, obviously. So another option that that's not as common, but it's worth mentioning because you'll find it uh, from time to time, is that the queen of heaven is the goddess Anat. Now, even though this isn't as common, uh, the goddess Anat is attested to in Ugaritic mythological text, uh, Anat is worshipped by the Amorites and also apparently in Egypt, at least during the 19th dynasty. And Anat is known as the lady or mistress of royalty. And uh, she'll also occasionally have the title mistress of the highest heavens. And so although she's also a possible candidate, she's not as common as the previous two, uh, at least as far as in ancient Near Eastern literature. And so it's also unlikely that she would be the candidate because 
her popularity seemed to decline during the first millennium, which would be during the time of Jeremiah. Obviously, Jeremiah is writing during the time of Jerusalem's destruction, right in the middle of the first millennium. And Anat seems to be very unpopular during that time. She, she doesn't uh, have a lot of following, at least from the literature, it seems that way. So those would be the three main views. You could have the goddess of Ishtar for the Mesopotamian deities, or you could have the Canaanite religion represented by Astarte, uh, or you could have a knot which kind of is uh, the Amorites and the Egyptians and whatnot. Now, I think instead of, and here, here's where I, where I take this as I just think through what we see in scripture a lot of times and just thinking through human nature is I, I think it would be a mistake per se to, to have to push for one, one at the exclusion of the other. And what I mean by that is I tend to view the queen of heaven as a, an amalgamation, as kind of a combination of different, uh, deities or, or variations of that deity. I don't think we have to push hard that the Israelites are worshiping the exact same way, the exact same quote unquote goddess that, that somebody else is, is worshiping. That's not what we see, uh, historically and human nature would seem to indicate that that's not, not how it would work to begin with. So, and, and by the way, part of the reason I think this is because when we trace some of the, uh, goddesses like Ishtar and Astarte, a lot of scholars actually note that there are overlaps and crossovers between them in the sense that, for example, even their names correspond to each other in the Ugaritic deity lists. So others, so, in, so in fact, what people are arguing, uh, in a sense is that Ishtar and Astarte are the same deity, or at least they were related to one another. And the, the differences between them are related more to geographical differences in how they were worshiped. So a similar concept might be uh, to compare, for example, the the Greek god Zeus and the Roman god Jupiter, for example. Now, they are the same god, but they're not, right? Obviously, the Romans worship Jupiter differently than Zeus, than the Greeks worshiped Zeus. However, they are essentially formed by the same template. It, it just ends up being applied differently. And so this is a, this is a example of amalgamation and it, it I think is a helpful illustration understanding how a culture can incorporate a foreign god and make certain changes which would fit their way of doing things. So they don't need to incorporate a deity wholesale. They can incorporate a deity and make some changes for however they see fit to worship that god. Now, obviously that's not right, but it was never right to begin with to incorporate another deity besides Yahweh for, for Israel. And yet being sinners and being corrupted, uh, Israel tends to do this quite often. And so that's kind of what I would see happening here. I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that they are worshiping the exact same way as the Assyrians or the exact same way as the Canaanites. I think it's much more attractive to Israel and it's much easier for them to incorporate these worship, uh, the, the worship of these other deities without having to convince everyone, hey, we're going to worship exactly like the Canaanites. No, that's probably not going to go over so well. And so it's much better to try to just incorporate a syncretistic kind of worship into your system. Now, this may be proven by scripture. It might not be. 
as far as other evidence. Now, it would work, obviously, with Scripture, but we don't have a lot of evidence for how Israel exactly worshipped other gods. We just have reference to high places and things like that. But it is interesting that in places like Judges 2.13 and 1 Samuel 7.4, you have reference to a plurality of gods, the, quote, Baals and the Ashtaroth. So... What that seems to indicate, at least, I mean, you could take this a couple different ways, but if we just take it at face value with the plurality, Baals and the plural of Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth, what that would seem to indicate then is that there are uh, multiple forms or at least multiple manifestations of how these gods are worshipped. And so perhaps in, in northern Canaan versus Southern Canaan, Western Canaan, Eastern Canaan, whatever you would have it. The worship of Baal and Astarte, Ashtoreth in Hebrew, are not the same. Maybe there would be local manifestations or distinctions. And so too, in Israel then, maybe there would be their own, their own play on worshiping one of these gods or maybe both of them, maybe amalgamating them into one deity in a specialized way. So I think that's as close as we can probably get. I don't, I don't think we can slam dunk say, Oh yeah, this is for sure Ishtar or for sure Astarte. It's probably some sort of combination or amalgamation of both or even a unique twist on them. And I think that's probably given human nature and what we see in scripture. That's the best we can probably observe. And so it's, I hope it's not too discouraging to just say, like, who is the queen of heaven? Oh, we're not exactly sure. Well, obviously, every indication from Jeremiah is that this is an idolatrous occurrence. This is obviously something that is that is not accepted or to be glorified in, but it's condemned and very soundly so with, with great authority on the Lord's behalf through Jeremiah. And so it's it's interesting to think about. It helps us learn the contexts of the nations around us. And at the end of the day, it's one of those things where we need to say, this is, this is the best we can do. And thinking through these issues, uh, having, having merit, uh, we can only go so far, I think, in thinking through that. So I hope that's helpful to you. It's a lot of fun, I think, for me at least, uh, hopefully for you as well, to think through some of these issues, compare the cultural backgrounds of other nations that surround Israel, and think through the possibilities, what that might mean, and hopefully get a better understanding of, of Scripture. So you can always reach out to me. You can fill out the contact form on my website, petergaming.com. If you want to visit the seminary where I teach, you can visit shepherds.edu. We just launched a article factory, if you will, called Poimenas. And uh, Les Lofquist, Dr. Les Lofquist, is, is in charge of that. And he's been putting out some helpful material. You can go check that out. I would love to point you in that direction to benefit from that. So I look forward to being with you again soon. Until then... May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.